right, all right. Would you stand with me as we read the scriptures this morning? Our uh, text for this morning is out of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, and it reads like this. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch uh, of Etria, and Triconitus, and Lysantius, tetrarch of Albine. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. He went into all the country around Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Uh, as it is written in the, in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked road shall become straight and the rough ways smooth, and all the people will see God's salvation. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. One of the predominant themes, if not the most predominant theme of this season of Advent and Christmas is our desperate need for Jesus. It's the most predominant theme of the season. It's shocking, right? This is the reason that the symbol of Christmas is a light shining in the darkness, correct? And at least at its best, this is why uh, many of us risk life and limb to climb up on our houses every year and hang Christmas lights. Whether the person putting those Christmas lights on their house it even knows it or not, it's a symbol of the fact that the world needs Jesus. It's kind of a nice thought, actually, to keep that in mind as you're driving around town in the evenings this time of year when it gets dark at 4.30, and that's a little bit discouraging and depressing, right? That all of the Christmas lights you see are, again, whether we are cognizant of it or not, a symbol, a picture, a metaphor of our need for Jesus. But there is another side of that metaphor, right? That the world is in need of Jesus' light and that Jesus is the light of the world. But the other side of that metaphor is that the world is also a dark place, correct? You, you don't have light, well, you don't have darkness without light, right? You, and you need something to illuminate. And the, the truth of the matter is, is that the world very often can be a dark place, now, that darkness can be our sin, it can be the sin of the world, it can be brokenness, and those are all normal ways of interpreting this symbolism of darkness. But this morning, I want to talk about darkness as a way of speaking about blindness or an inability to see. Darkness is, I think, in the scriptures, an, a metaphor for our inability to see clearly, uh, that we are often blind to our need for Jesus. If the message of Christmas is that we are all in need of Jesus, the problem that many of us face is that we are blind to the fact that we need Jesus or we are blind to the parts of our lives where we need Jesus to come in and meet us, correct? In Matthew's gospel, uh, after he has given the parable of all these different kinds of soil 
If you're familiar with Matthew's gospel, you know this. Jesus has just given a parable, and he's saying there's, there's all these different types of soil. There's, there's good ground, and there's rocky soil, and the seed uh, is planted better in one versus the other. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a parable that caused a lot of confusion with his audience. And the disciples asked Jesus, as he is speaking about these parables, why he, why he is actually speaking in parables like this. And he responds to them again by quoting the prophet Isaiah. And this is what Jesus said. This people's heart have become calloused. They hardly hear with their eyes and they have closed, hear with their ears, excuse me. They have, they hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might have seen with their eyes, hear with their ears, understood with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Now, within the context of this passage of Scripture, what it's talking about is that the people of Israel, it's talking about the people of Israel, right, who are unable to see the Messiah, even though he's right in front of their face. This is the context of the passage that Jesus is talking about. But the kind of blindness that Jesus is talking about here, the kind of inability to see or hear in Jesus's language there is not is spoken about other places in the scriptures and not just about the people of Israel. At the beginning of John's gospel, he says that Jesus comes into the world, Jesus came into the world, and though the world was his own, though it belonged to him, though he was its creator, the world did not recognize him. You see, as much as we sing about a light that has pierced the darkness at Christmas time, I think we really need to see this as an invi- this time personally as a kind of invitation and that invitation is to see is to sight or it's maybe a better way of putting it is like this it's an invitation to ask the question where in my life am i blind to what jesus of uh, am i blind to who jesus is and what he is doing because like i said earlier in the in uh, after worship, I have this fundamental conviction, and that fundamental conviction is that Jesus is always at work. There is no space in this world in which he is not working, and yet, how often are we unaware of it? How often do we walk through this life unaware of the fact that Jesus is, in fact, working in and around us, and yet we're blind to it? And there's something in our lives that needs to be cultivated, a kind of awareness, a kind of attentiveness to who Jesus is and what he might be doing. And in a sense, we need to be unblinded, that the light needs to come and illuminate the darkness that is our inability to see or understand. Now, we talked about last week all of the ways that our souls can be deluded by this season we call Christmas. There's all kinds of stuff kind of roaming around in the culture, whether it be material goods or the, or the parties or the warm holiday sensations that really are not bad in and of themselves, but when we invest too much of ourselves in them, become a means of momentary distraction. They just distract us from the brokenness of our world. And we talked last week about how Jesus kind of puts his finger on the fact that very often when our lives are so taken up by anxiety, it becomes difficult to even see the ways in which we are not attentive to Jesus because anxiety just like fills up the screen of our minds. 
You see, it's hard to come alive to an awareness of God's love and to the still small voice of the Spirit in our lives when we are overly focused on the petty frustrations and difficulties of our lives. Now, in this passage of Scripture today, we are introduced to a biblical figure whose sole job, whose only job in the story, whose main purpose in life is to help people realize the fact that they are blind, that they don't see very well. John the Baptist is his name, and he is an incredibly important figure in the story of Jesus. In Jesus's life and his ministry, John the Baptist uh, forms this incredibly important part of the first part of Jesus's ministry. When we read about John the Baptist, he just kind of seems like this crazy who, this crazy prophet who's out in the wilderness doing strange things. But the text tells us that his job is to prepare the way for Jesus. He's going before him as a kind of herald. Basically, he, his job is to help people come to a realization of their need for the one that would come after him. Now, in order to really understand what is happening with this guy, John the Baptist, you kind of need to understand some background from the scriptures. There's some stuff you need to know about the story that led up to John the Baptist in order to really understand what he signified. You see, all four Gospels put a premium on John the Baptist. Even the Gospel of John mentions him and puts a premium on him at the very beginning of that Gospel. We learn about Jesus, uh, John's important role in the ministry of Jesus, uh, and we also learn that he's Jesus's cousin, correct? But the significance of John the Baptist goes far beyond just the fact that he's, he has a familial connection to Jesus. You have to go back all the way into the Old Testament, to the story of the Old Testament, in order to really understand what is happening here and how the writers of the New Testament understand John and what they understand him to be doing. Specifically, the person you have to go back to in the Old Testament, if you're going to understand John, is the prophet Elijah. Does that ring any bells for anybody? The prophet Elijah. If you grew up in, in or around church at all, you'll probably be most familiar with Elijah from the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. But Elijah in the Old Testament was considered basically the most prominent prophet in Israel's history. There were a lot of big ones. There's Isaiah and Jeremiah. But Elijah kind of took the cake in the minds and in the imaginations of the Hebrew people. Because he did a kind of heroic work, uh, he was a prophet of, at a particularly dark time in Israel's history. The people of God had strayed a long ways from what, they, what God had called them to be. The whole community was taken up with this wor worship of other gods other than Yahweh, and specifically the cult of Baal began to rise up in Israel at this time to such an extent that people really didn't know or understand who the God of Israel actually was. And Elijah comes on the scene as a voice, a voice crying out in the desert. All of these guys, they all love the desert. But what you need to know about Elijah here and what was stuck in the minds of the audience that, that these gospel writers were writing to is that they knew something about Elijah. And what they knew about Elijah was that he never died. If you're familiar with the story, you know this. Elijah didn't die. Elijah was caught up in a chariot of fire and carried 
to heaven, apparently, is what the, the way the story goes. And everyone in Jesus' uh, world, all the, all, the, all the people of Israel at this time, would have known this. They would have known this story of Elijah. But the story of Elijah didn't end with his not dying and being caught up to God in a chariot of fire. Because there was a promise. And the promise is found at the end of the Old Testament in the book of Malachi. You can flip there if you want. I don't have it in my notes. But it's the very last couple of verses of the book of Malachi. And in that section of, of the right before the beginning of your New Testament, we are told that the great prophet will return. And when he does, when he returns... It'll be this, the primary sign that the end of the world is happening. That sounds fun, doesn't it? Right? This is, what the, this is what the book of Malachi says. And so when the gospel writers begin their biographies of the life of Jesus, they don't begin with Jesus, first and foremost. They begin with John. And it's quite clear from all of the gospel writers that they believe that John is the new Elijah. Uh, Mark specifically uh, uses the exact description of John that's used of Elijah in the book of Kings. And so there is this big story happening on the horizon of this passage that's very important. So when John uh, appears in the desert and he begins his ministry, he is acting as basically this new Elijah and really the last great prophet of Israel. In some sense, the first great prophet of Israel and the last great prophet of, of, of Israel. And all prophets of God did two things primarily. They did a lot of other stuff too. But the two primary things that they did was that they called the people to repentance. They called people to repentance and they re rebuked the wickedness of Israel's kings and authorities. This was the two things they did. Now, it's not surprising to me at all that before we're introduced to John the Baptist in this passage, we get a list of all of Israel's kings and authorities. It's, it's basically saying, like, John's got a problem with these guys, right? That's the list of people John has a problem with. And if you know the story of John, he did have a problem with them. He got a little sideways with them. And he eventually got his head chopped off because of it. But here's what's interesting about John. And this is something you won't necessarily know from the Bible itself. But John had an incredibly large movement surrounding him. Most historians say that the, the John in, in his day was more well known possibly than Jesus was. There are, we have extra biblical sources that talk about this guy, John the Baptist, this enigmatic desert figure who began this huge movement of repentance. And what's so fascinating about that is that, uh, is that there's something happening with John in this desert that's, that's explosive. It challenges not just the people themselves, but the very structures of, of political power in his day. He's all of, and all of this he's doing in this mode of a prophet. He's not just doing it in the mode of a prophet. He is the last great prophet of the Hebrew people. And so, but when the, when the gospel writers talk about him, they talk about him within this kind of, this structure or this story as John as like the new Elijah. 
And in Luke's gospel, when he introduces us, this is what, to John, this is what he says. Uh, uh, beginning in verse 4. A voice of one calling in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight. And the rough way smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. Now this is interesting here. Because though Luke is introducing us to John, this great uh, prophet, Elijah basically, he's not quoting anything that Elijah said here. He's actually quoting Isaiah chapter 40. Now you're like, what? This doesn't make sense. Why Why is he quoting Isaiah chapter 40 in a passage where he's introducing us to Elijah? Shouldn't he use some of Elijah's quotations. And what I want to draw your attention to is how intentional this is. It's not a mistake. You see, in Isaiah chapter 40, the people that Isaiah is talking to are uh, are the people of Israel who have been taken off to captivity in Babylon. They're exiles in, in a place that is not their home. And up until, the, up until Isaiah chapter 40, uh, Isaiah is a pretty harsh prophet. He's, he's speaking uh, words of correction and rebuke to the people. But at the point at which the people of Israel are taken off to captivity, at the point at which they are exiles in Babylon, this is the part of Isaiah where uh, Isaiah the prophet begins to say, or God says to the, to the prophet, comfort, comfort, speak words of comfort to my people, Israel. And so the the whole tone of Isaiah's book shifts in Isaiah chapter 40. And so you have what you have here is a mashup of prophetic and Old Testament images of John the Baptist, who is this new Elijah speaking a word of consolation in the midst of to a people who are like new are still exiled, are still under the under the grip of something. And is announcing the end of the world. It's quite a mashup, isn't it? There's a lot of different strands of biblical thought going on here. So, uh, how do we make sense of what Luke is telling us with this passage? What is it about this John the Baptist? What's his role? What's his purpose? And what does he have to say to us today? about how we navigate through life as followers of Jesus. You see, when we read about these enigmatic figures like John, it can be very easy to go like, that was a weird guy who did some weird stuff, and just kind of keep it moving. But the reality is that John, I think, points to us this fact, that there come times in our lives where God will use both circumstances and people to point some things out to us, to actually uh, help us to move from a state of blindness to a state of sight. You see, in a sense, the, the role of a prophet was to take a people who were blind, who were in darkness, and to illuminate some things for them. And for Uh, John, in his audience, his primary role or his responsibility was to prepare the way for Jesus so that when he came, people could see him. He wanted to clear away some of the the, uh, distractions so that people could see Jesus. And in the same way, I think there are numerous distractions in our lives 
that need to be cleared away so that we can see what it is that Jesus wants to do. So, from this passage, I think we can glean a couple uh, maybe really important points. And the first point is that we are often unaware we are in need. We are often unaware that we are in need. I don't know about you, but uh, I'm kind of over the tough part of it now, but uh, at about, honestly, last year at this time, the pandemic stuff began to really, really wear on me, right? And I didn't realize how much it was wearing on me. I, I, was, I began to be a little frazzled. I would, I would be short with people that I shouldn't be short with, particularly people that are closest to me. And I just began to realize, like, I, I am in need, but I am not I'm not necessarily aware of how in need I am. You see, have you ever had, uh, have you ever met in, or maybe you've had it in your own life, or maybe you've had a friend that ex- has experienced what we call a burnout? Has anybody ever been there? You feel burnt out, or you've had a friend that just really experienced burnout. Very often, the people right on the precipice of burnout have no idea that they're there. And it's something insignificant that actually pushes them over the edge, right? It's like something, I was talking last week about my alternator, I think. It's, it's always something, it's always something insignificant that takes them from the point of everything's fine to my whole life is in shambles, right? That's how, that's how burnout tends to work. We, we can be right on the precipice of it, but not be aware of the fact that we are in need of some help. And this is what we're shown here, that Things can seem or feel okay to us at times. And yet, there, there are almost always places in our lives that Jesus wants to get at us where we are unaware of our need. And so part of the responsibility, part of the, not responsibility, that's the wrong word, part of the opportunity that's made available to us in Jesus is that we are uh, able and willing to open our lives to the work of God and to create space inside of our hearts for God to actually work on us. You see, there are, there are moments in our lives when we do hit the wall. And in those, in those hitting the wall moments, we actually find space freed up to address the thing that Jesus actually wants to address in our lives. Which leads us maybe to our second point this morning, and that is that the Word of God often comes to us in the wilderness. This is what we read in verse 2. The Word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. As I've said before, all the great prophets, they love the desert. They're desert people. I don't know what it is about the wilderness or wilderness times in our lives, but they just have this way of stirring things up in us. They just have this way of bringing us to our end so that in that place we can meet with Jesus. Maybe it's because when we are in the wilderness, there are fewer distractions. Maybe uh, what we were talking about earlier, there's just this kind of stripping away of all of the things that distract us, and we're primed to listen in those spaces. But the Word of God often comes to us and opens our eyes when we're in the wilderness. Possibly, you are in the wilderness now. Possibly, you're there because of something you did. That happens, right? We get in the wilderness because of stuff we did. 
Possibly you're there because of something you did not do, something that happened to you. You just kind of ended up there. Maybe some sin inside of us caused us to end up in that place. That's very possible. But make no mistake, God does not need you to get cleaned up before he meets you. You see, God wants to meet us right there in our own desert moments, in our own brokenness. He wants to meet you and he wants to meet me in the circumstances of our real lives. Not in a kind of cleaned up or sterile version of our lives. This is so important. He comes to us when we're in the desert, when we're in the wilderness, in this place where we might feel abandoned, where we might feel at our wit's end, where we might often feel as though we are all alone. And what does he do in that place? Well, according to this passage of Scripture, he speaks words of consolation and comfort, doesn't he? You see, he speaks a comforting word. I'm convinced that learning to listen to the voice of God in our lives is learning to kind of drown out all of the condemning voices and learn to listen to the comforting ones. To learn to, learn to like kind of drown out or push away the judgmental voices, the voices of shame, and to instead listen to the voice of comfort, of love, of acceptance even. And then in that place, to be able to take positive steps in the wilderness towards Jesus. It doesn't mean that everything's going to be fine. It doesn't mean that we're going to get out of the desert right away. But it does mean that that is the place where God meets us. He will always meet us there. Now, God, can God meet us in places other than the desert? Yes, that's very possible. Occasionally, I, on Saturday afternoons, uh, when I'm running errands, I stop by Arby's. I don't tell my wife about it. I hide it. I save up 3 or $4 so that I can get uh, a roast beef sandwich and some curly fries because these are things you need to hide from your wife from time to time. There are things, and Arby's is one of them. Uh, sorry. <laughs> We're recording this, so you can play it for her afterwards. Uh, and in... And it's very, very often when I'm sitting in an Arby's on a Saturday afternoon housing a roast beef sandwich as quickly as possible because I have to get home, uh, I come to the realization that life is very good, right? And in the goodness and the beauty of those moments, and I don't know why, this, this is not in my notes, as you can tell. In the beauty and the goodness of those moments, I can sometimes be very thankful and say, thank you, Lord, this is good. At the same time, you can experience good experiences, right? You can take in good art. You can experience great fellowship with friends. And you can experience the goodness of God in those moments. But there is something so profound about being in the wilderness. And none of us get out of this life without being in the wilderness from time to time. It's just true. But here's the third observation from our text today. When the word of God... Uh, illuminates, I think that says eliminates, but I mean illuminates our brokenness. It is always grace, even if it doesn't feel like it. When the word of God illuminates our brokenness, it is always grace, even when it doesn't feel like it. Sometimes when we hear a word that illuminates our lives, 
when the darkness of our lives gets kind of uh, put into the light, that moment can be quite difficult, can't it? This is what the prophet says. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked road shall be straightened and the rough way smoothed, and all people will see God's salvation. It sounds like some serious road work happening, right? The prophet's saying like there's some excavation that's going to occur. I don't know, maybe we'll have to blast the granite out of your heart, right, from time to time. And that feels difficult, doesn't it? When you are faced with your own brokenness or some situation comes into your life and you see it for what it is, it's incredibly hard. It can be difficult. But Jesus never illuminates something in our lives that isn't an invitation to grace, even if it doesn't feel like it. We can react negatively, can't we? When we see something true about ourselves that doesn't feel good, and yet, this is the role of the prophet, right? And yet, there is an invitation in the midst of that truth-telling to a new way of life, to a rightly ordered relationship with God, to a rightly ordered relationship with other people, to taking steps into freedom and wholeness. There's always grace. There's always grace when our brokenness is illuminated. I... Uh, studied a little bit in school uh, about family systems theory. Have any of you ever heard of family systems theory? It's a, it's a theory of um, counseling, basically. And I don't remember much about it. Uh, <laughs> I'm honestly not, I don't have a very good memory. But what I, what I remember is that this, uh, this one psychologist makes this argument in family systems theory. And he says, every, every relational system always tries to work for equilibrium. And I think you know this in your own family. Like every, every family system has a balance to it, right? And that balance can be healthy or that balance can be kind of unhealthy. And when somebody like does something that offsets the balance, like things get a little heated, right? Because the balance is off. If somebody in, if somebody in the system, there's a balanced system, if somebody in the system says, like, dad does that thing and it's bad. It throws the system, it throws the balance of the system off because everybody's a little anxious, right? All, all, all systems kind of work towards equilibrium. And that's true in our own lives too. We, we work to try to find balance in our lives that makes us feel good. And when, and when the Holy Spirit puts his finger on something in our lives, when God illuminates some darkness in our hearts, it can feel like the whole system's being knocked out of whack and that we're off balance, we're off kilter. And yet, it is an invitation. It, it is a gracious invitation into a new way of life. And so when we find ourselves thrown off kilter, when we find ourselves in the wilderness, when we've experienced maybe God putting his finger on something in our lives, when he's illuminated some aspect of our lives that he wants us to bring into the light, always an invitation to grace. It's always an invitation to rest in God's acceptance and love. It's always an invitation into the person that God has created you to be. It's always a good thing. 
I'm reminded of people, uh, I've, I've never, I, I actually was a part of an intervention one time when I was 12 years old, not about me, about another 12-year-old friend, but I'm not going to tell that story. If somebody has an intervention for somebody who's dealing with substance abuse issues, right? It's like all their friends and their family, they get in a circle and then they, they tell them like, it's going to be, a, it's like a surprise birthday party, only it's an intervention where we tell you that you, you know, you have some substance abuse issues and you need to address them or you have these issues that you need to address. All that is is a group of people in a room saying we love you and we want you to get better, right? But the person who's in the room can often experience the we love you and we want you to get better as uh, something quite bad, right? Because they're in the midst of their brokenness and it makes sense. And very often when God puts his finger on something, we can be like the person in the middle of the intervention going, maybe this is good, but it just doesn't feel good right now, right? And I think part of the muscle of grace that Christians need to learn to exercise is the muscle of trust in the voice of the Holy Spirit in our lives when he illuminates parts of our brokenness. When we're in relationship and somebody points out, when you said that to me, it hurt my feelings. And rather than getting defensive, we can say, oh, maybe that's the voice of the Holy Spirit putting a finger on something that needs to maybe be brought into the light. Maybe you're in a moment of prayer, you get, you're brought back to a memory of a thing you said or did to a friend or to a stranger, and, you're, and there's guilt in that moment, and the, and the impulse is to push that thing away in that moment of prayer, but what it actually is is an invitation into a fuller life, a more healthy expression of the kingdom of God in your own heart. You see, when the word of God comes to us, when the spirit illuminates our darkness, as much as we have this impulse to push it away, as much as we have this impulse to do the exact opposite, maybe, of what we should, it is always an invitation to rest in God's grace. It's always an invitation to, uh, to live in the light. To live in the light. And so this morning, I just want us to take a moment to reflect. Shall we? Would you stand with me this morning? And you know what I've found has the greatest power to illuminate our darkness? To illuminate those parts of our lives that maybe Jesus and the Holy Spirit want to get a hold of? It's Christmas, right? <laughs> it's like having a bunch of, being very busy and having a bunch of stuff. It's by being around the table with family members that really drive you crazy, but you have to be around the table with them because they're in your family, right? These are the type of activities, these are the types of behaviors that actually illuminate things in our hearts. And God will use them if we're attentive to put his finger on areas in our lives where he wants us to step into more of who he created us to be. And so this morning, in an attitude of prayer, with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you just take a moment right now, and would you just ask the Lord. Maybe, maybe it's right at the top of your mind. What in me do you want? Where, where is there some darkness in me that you want to illuminate this morning? Is there a part of my life, Jesus, where you want to point some, something out to me? Are there some crooked roads that need to be straightened out? Are, are there some valleys that need to be filled in? Are there some high places that need to be brought low? Also that I could prepare a heart for you so that, I could, so that I could make my heart that's more devoted and loving towards you, Jesus.
And just in your mind's eye as you do that, would you just offer that thing up to Jesus without defensiveness, without explanation, without shame? And would you just say to Jesus, Jesus, I offer this thing to you. Would you work in the midst of this area? Would you have your way in my life? And would you light up my darkness? And now I want to pray for you. Father, we love you. And I'm so thankful that you take us on this journey of discovery that is called being a follower of Jesus. And we pray that this, uh, this Christmas season, God, that you would invite us into a process of discovery, that we would become a people on a journey with you to become more like you, Jesus, and that as we walk out this, uh, our lives and as we walk out our journeys of faith, God, would you form in us hearts that look like your heart, Jesus? Would you form in us minds that look like your mind, Jesus? And would we be open and receptive to the word of the Lord when it comes to us and it illuminates parts of our lives that we hadn't seen before? God, would you meet us in our wilderness places? Would you meet us in the desert? And would you, God, live close to our hearts? We make ourselves open and available to you this morning. And we pray, Jesus, that as we go from this place and we go out into a busy, another busy week, God, that your hand would be on us and that we would see, hear, and know pray it this morning, all in the name of Jesus. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen, and amen, and amen. Thanks for being at church today. It's good to see you all. We're excited for the next three uh, gatherings together as we celebrate Christmas. Uh, would you go today in the grace and in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ?